This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. In these conversations, we make sense of what's next. Join me, my co-hosts, and my guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Today, I'm running this episode together with my co-host, Sina Heikila. In this episode, we talk to James Carrier, one of Silicon Valley's foremost experts in growth and network effect. James is a four-time CEO of VC-baked companies, including Tycol, Wonderhill, Iron Pearl, and GIF, all acquired. James is a pioneer of user-generated models, fire marketing, A-B testing, crowdsourcing, and a myriad of other growth techniques that have since been adopted by nearly all technology companies, including LinkedIn and Facebook. In 2015, James co-founded NFX, a 150 million early stage venture capital firm focused on network effect businesses, along with Pete Flint and Gigi Levi Ways. In this conversation, which is amazingly insightful, we explore the real and so far unseen boundaries of the transitions towards an economy more heavily based on marketplaces and market networks, and how this transformation both shapes and is shaped by the major shifts and challenges that are currently emerging in the global society, including environmental, social, political, and regulatory. We talk about the need for strong and charismatic leaders to steward these shifts, as well as the need to retrain people to gain the right competencies to deal with an increasingly digital networked economy and transforming industries. Enjoy this thought-provoking episode, and don't forget to check out the references in the show notes. So, James, thanks very much for joining us today, talking about uh, essentially exploring with you how we can see, we can imagine the future of marketplaces and, and platforms to play out. And especially the first starter of, of the conversation that I would like to share with you is uh, essentially asking you your impression in terms of uh, new spaces uh, and new, uh, new parts of the economy where this uh, model of marketplaces and platforms will likely play out in, in the future. So what are the new, the, I would say also the low-hanging fruits for this uh, uh, way of organizing to be, you know, what are the new frontiers where these new ways of organizing are going to play out in the short and mid-term? Yeah, I think, I think that the best way to think about it is really to set your mind to the idea that it's going to play out in every aspect of society. And that's that's government, that's that's environmental, that's social, that's uh, marketplaces, transactions, labor markets, education, anything that we care about, anything that forms societies is going to be digitized, is going to be touched by the efficiency that these interfaces bring. And therefore, understanding how they work and why they work is critical to almost any job that we have. Uh, no matter where we sit in the economy. And I think <clears throat> while that will be, um, it'll, it'll play out in different places at different times, I think taking that approach and that attitude to realizing it's going to touch everything, I think is the best way to begin the experiment of trying to understand what's about to happen over the next 20 years. And uh, what makes it so, I would say, so potentially widespread from your point of view? Is, is it just efficiency? Is it some specific, uh, let's say, uh, aspect of uh, organizing in markets and platforms that uh, will make it the, the model for the 21st century? I think it's the universality of, of, the, of the interfaces and the, just the data collection. 
if you look at how the world works before, how the world worked before the internet, um, it, it did not appear to be driven by math. But in fact, if you, if you look more deeply, you will see that it was driven by math. It just, we couldn't watch the math happening. But now with the internet and the mobile phones and all the, the technologies that allow us to collect the data, we can now collect the math. We can collect the data as things are happening among people, between people, within a person, and we can actually start to model it and see it. What we've seen in the last 25 years with the internet is just the beginning of that process. And I think actually it will accelerate as more and more people get comfortable with using the devices to generate data, then using the devices to look at the data in real time, aggregate the data, and then send it out. Marketplaces and networks like Facebook and LinkedIn and eBay and, and whatnot are just the beginnings, <clears throat> the most obvious uh, interfaces to this type of data, the most obvious ways of revealing the math underlying all the things that we do in life, um, starting with you know buying and selling things or connecting with people and sharing photos. But uh, the universality of the technology will touch everything. Very interesting. And, uh, you know, some questions came up quite, uh, quite uh, obviously, you know, when, when we talk about data and, uh, uh, you know, for example, the, this presentation that uh, um, Benedict Evans just shared at the World Economic Forum a few months ago, and it was a starter also for this conversation about regulation. And, you know, there's this speculation that uh, the next paradigm shift is uh, essentially what you just said. So the, the internet penetrating every aspect of our life and therefore uh, all this uh, capability to generate data and insight. But, you know, my question for you is... Um, not just about the data in the in itself. No, that is normally, uh, especially here in Europe, we are we are pretty used to this idea of uh, regulation uh, intervening, let's say, to protect data. But uh, also uh, the insights that data can generate. So, what are the what are the let's say the the constituencies and uh, the uh, uh, entities that uh, are uh, entitled in this perspective? to, uh, uh, let's say, act on the insights that data is going to make possible, it's going to generate. So, so how do you see this interplay between, uh, let's say, institutions and companies uh, uh, in this perspective? Yeah, the, it's, it's a very interesting question. The, the interplay broadly, I think a guy named uh, Neil Ferguson, obviously, has written a beautiful book called The Square and the Tower, in which he discusses the difference between hierarchical structures and, and network structures. And as the technology seeks to create networks, uh, the hierarchies that exist today that are intended to protect people, whether it's governments um, or educational institutions or churches or whatnot, the hierarchical institutions are going to essentially fight back against the open field network availability of all the data. And that interplay will be an ongoing battle between the two forces. Um, ultimately, the network will win uh, because it is math-based, because it is technology-based, and um, it'll just take time. Uh, the, the hierarchies that we have in place today, I think, will slow it down. And we can, as <clears throat> members of the society, vote to slow down the progress of, sort of widespread adoption. But I think 
you know, over the next 100 years, you're going to see that um, it sort of inexorably moves toward more transparency um, and, uh, and more data collection, more data analysis, easier insights. And, you know, that may not necessarily mean that we live better lives. Uh, or happier lives, or but but it is. Uh, I think um, I think history will show that uh, just like industrialization has now, you know, touched the whole globe, you will see the same thing happen with information technology. Um, as to who gets to decide, that's going to be decided on a on a weekly and monthly and yearly basis by each of the countries, by each of the polities. Um, but um, but I think we know the general direction where <clears throat> where it's all going. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's super interesting, especially when you when you embrace this uh, hundred-year perspective. No, that that what what you said, and uh, so so let let me jump into a maybe a, a bit of a, a, a specific question. So so so, so when, when when especially if we embrace this uh, uh, let's say century perspective. Uh, so my question is, um, do you see these models? Uh, uh, somehow uh, uh, play out as a new institutional forms. So, uh, for example, uh, when you think about how uh, citizens or, or uh, other new uh, players can, uh, let's say, organize uh, the uh, economy and the economic activity uh, in ways that are maybe uh, different from what uh, normally a startup or a corporate would do. So do you see this... Uh, um, you know, math-based, data-based model uh, somehow empowering new forms of institutions to organize uh, civic, civic, uh, soci- civic society? And uh, another question on top of these, all these infrastructures and technologies that we need for uh, data and, and for uh, connectivity, how do you see them, you know, evolving in this uh, perspective? Yeah, I do. I do think that we're going to see new institutions develop, and the <clears throat> these new institutions, I think, will be will be driven by the same thing that drives uh, most great new institutions, which is uh, charismatic leaders combined with network effects. So <clears throat> you can imagine a, a charismatic leader building a network uh, and trust and technology to uh, help protect people uh, for for privacy reasons, and then. Uh, whether it's like a Wikipedia or an electronic frontier foundation, uh, you will see uh, these new forms emerge around individuals as long as those individuals also then build the platform to have network effects so that the system has staying power. Um, you know, uh, then the success of them will, will be determined ad hoc. It'll be determined uh, in, the, in the moment. I think, you know, we've seen the emergence re- recently of one called Libra, where David Marcus and the Facebook crew pulled together a community to try to build a, a global currency. And uh, the governments appear at this time to have uh, prevented it. The hierarchies, the existing hierarchies have, have uh, positioned themselves and made demands uh, so far that, that the Libra system won't be uh, nearly what it could have been and is essentially defeated. Um, we'll see how that plays out over the next year or two. But um, you know, these sorts of, you know, extra governmental or non-corporate entities like Libra uh, will start to emerge and some will succeed and most will fail, just like with most startups. Uh, but, you know, it's going to come down to the entrepreneurs leading them, uh, the design of their products, 
and uh, the, the timing, just like it does for any sort of startup. Uh, but, but I look at that as sort of a, um, you know, a cultural entrepreneur. Uh, David, David, even though that was a, 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 a currency, I saw Libra more as a cultural entrepreneurship attempt. And I think we'll start to see more and more of those. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And, uh, you know, basically, if I think about an investor like you, you know, investing in, in startups, somehow it's a role that needs um, to play out in a fairly, uh, I would say, uh, institutional and um, traditional context, let's say. Instead, when you talk about how this may play out, I get uh, uh, this idea that these new institutions may sometimes play out in contracts to the incumbents, so so generating these frictions with the incumbents. So uh, when you think about this new space uh, of new institutional uh, platforms that maybe provide also different services, and I'm also interested in understanding from you uh, where do you see these new services coming up? So uh, are we talking about, for example, how we produce energy or how we organize education or what kind of stuff? And, you know, this friction between the, the establishment, let's say the 20th century establishment and institutions and these new institutions coming up, how, what frictions can we see? And, and where is this new space developing? Yeah, so I don't have, a, oh, I don't have nearly the crystal ball. I, I, I guess... My comment about this would be that um, <clears throat> over the years, uh, I've learned that it's very hard to predict a lot of these things. And therefore, what we should do instead is build systems that rapidly, uh, that allow for rapid iteration and experimentation, that allow for rapid starts and ends uh, without friction. Um, you know, as, as an American, and, and when I look over at the European markets, this is one of the challenges I see the European markets have, is that people want a little more stability, they want a little more rationality, they want explanations, they want to think it through. And and the, the speed with which you can try a new idea and have it die is much faster in the U.S., and it's even faster in China. And I think long-term, the systems that will work better are the ones that allow for this rapid iteration, because we don't know where all these things are coming from. When will the educational systems be willing to be disrupted? You know, people's trust in the status orientation of a Harvard or a Princeton or a Yale is very strong. Yet in the last three years, people, that that system has been cracking. It might be time for ISAs, income sharing agreements, and a new form of, uh, new forms of education and human capital development to emerge Uh, in a space that has been static for generations. People have been trying to upend education for 50 years in the United States with no real success. Uh, Is the time now? Hard to say. Uh, But I think we should keep trying and we should try these small experiments like we're seeing with companies like Lambda School and we're seeing with ISA marketplaces and whatnot. That's just an example. That's just one vertical, which is education. Um, and, And so... Uh, you know, the friction is going to come from uh, people staying relevant and people getting their salaries. So if you live in Washington, D.C., or if you live in Paris and you, your income comes from your hierarchy that uh, has been designed for the systems to continue to function the way they function, then it's in your interest to maintain the status quo and essentially to 
join with your coworkers in fighting whatever is trying to emerge next, whatever new experiment there is. And, you know, that's, that's your role in the economy based on where you sit. I think there's a wonderful phrase, which is where you stand on any subject is based on where you sit, meaning where your seat is, where you get your income. And so the friction is going to be between where people are getting their income today and, and where it's going to be coming later. And the friction is going to be between those people who are listened to today, those people who are influential, those people who get invited to the cocktail parties and to the black tie affairs and are, are allowed to give speeches in front of people because of where they sit versus the new people coming up who are going to be uh, listened to and be influential uh, using new networks or new marketplaces of ideas. And that's where the friction is going to come is, is those in power, those in money, those in status, not wanting to cede that status, that money, that influence to uh, new systems, new marketplaces, new market networks, new networks, uh, new forms of technology and expression. Um, you're, you're seeing that on YouTube with the YouTubers, you know, <clears throat> starting to get traction uh, up against Hollywood. Uh, you're starting to see that um, <clears throat> with, you know, the right wing media in the United States fighting uh, the traditional uh, somewhat left wing uh, main media outlets. Uh, <clears throat> so you're going to continue to see those frictions as, as people fight for position in society. Very interesting. Uh, so I would like to just follow up with a question on, on that. Uh, because uh, surely the education system as it is today is quite poorly equipped to uh, to shape individuals to fight in and sort of get get on in this world so what are some of the the key skills and competences that you see uh, that people entering you know their kind of career at this stage what what would they need so, so I'm, I'm very biased on this. And so um, take what I say with a grain of salt. But, you know, I grew up in Boston in the United States, which is uh, quite similar in many ways to London. It is, it is one of the most European type of cities that we have. Um, and I ended up going to the educational universities of that area. Uh, one's called Exeter, another's Princeton, and I went to Harvard Business School. These are very traditional institutions high in status, high in tradition, part of the, uh, the establishment, if you will. I have chosen to move out to San Francisco 20 years ago because I believe the way that the people think out here is actually the future. That what makes Silicon Valley Silicon Valley is a mindset. It's ways of thinking. And it is those ways of thinking I believe we should be teaching to people. Those ways of thinking are about iteration. Those ways are thinking about design thinking, about how you design something. Uh, those ways of thinking are about tolerance for failure. Those ways of thinking are about non-zero sum. Okay, This is a very foreign concept in most places in the world, but in Silicon Valley, we don't believe in zero sum. We don't think that there is a limited pie that is to be divided. We think that the pie is, is as big as we want to make it. You just invent something new. You invent a new way of generating wealth. You invent new products. You invent new institutions. You invent new language. 
right? Buckminster Fuller, who I like to quote, said, you cannot, uh, you cannot change complex uh, structures and hierarchies from inside. You have to build something new and something better, something 10x better, so that the old, everyone moves to the new thing and the old thing melts away. And that mindset is very different from what we see on the East Coast of the United States and what we see uh, particularly in Europe. And so I feel as if the educational institutions are not only teaching inefficiently, but they are teaching the wrong things. They are, they're, they're teaching people the wrong ways of thinking simply by how they operate. An example is that the, the talk I give frequently out here is about speed and about going quickly and about when you're, when you're innovating, when you're trying to create something new in the world, when you're doing a startup, the one attribute you have that other people don't have is speed. And I use the X-Wing fighters from Star Wars as the example. You know, going up against the Death Star, the only thing the X-Wing fighters had was speed and they had to use it to their advantage. And it's the same thing when you're trying to do something interesting or new is going fast. But the reason most people don't go fast is because the educational institutions have taught us that things happen at an annual pace, maybe at a semester's pace. They have taught us to go so slowly in our development between first grade and the, la and the last year of, of university. And so we emerge from that system going at 120th, 130th of the speed that we could actually be moving at. But nobody is showing us the faster ways of doing it. And we don't even realize we're learning that speed bar, that we think that's how quickly the world moves. We don't realize that's what's being taught, but that is the meta lesson of the way the educational system works. And that mindset tends to be reduced here in Silicon Valley more than any other place I've been in the world except for China, where I think they are even faster than we are here. And so, so I think, I think that the, the educational institutions, as we all know, are teaching the wrong things and they're teaching them poorly. But they are still in place because of status. They are still in place because of branding, because of signaling. And those things are much more difficult to create. We could create better curriculum. We could create faster curriculum. We could create better and teach better mindsets. And Stanford is teaching better mindsets. But it's very hard to replace these status structures within our, our overall societies. And that's what's really a, a causing us to cling to these ancient institutions, which are serving us so badly. Hastina, I, I, have, a, I have a question. I don't know if you have, do you have a follow-up uh, consideration? No, I think I, it really uh, resonates with, I mean, my, I come from, uh, I studied at the University of Cambridge. I've been through the UN and the OECD. So I think uh, there's a lot what you say there that is uh, about, uh, you know, holding on to, to certain structures out of, you know, also legacy, what you have created. It's very hard to let go. So it's... Uh, it's Go. I mean, we, we started a homeschool for my children here in the United States, and I learned a great deal from that because after a year we stopped it. And the main issue for most education, for, particularly for young children, is uh, this idea that by doing something different than what they had, 
they are risking their children's futures. And then when you look at university, the universities don't want to change because it would make the professors irrelevant. It would make their tenure worthless. It would end their relevance if we were to actually open the system up. And the same is true for the OECD uh, and the UN, which is it is the system, the network of the people, which is the value, not the individuals. And therefore, all the individuals, in order to preserve their income and their status, seek to maintain the whole of the network, the UN network, the OECD network, the Belgium network. And these are the, the, the mechanisms, the network mechanisms that we can see and we can actually measure them to see how resistant a hierarchy is to, to innovation. James, I have a, a question on China uh, because I had the chance to work with Chinese companies in the last, uh, in the last year. I've been working a lot with a higher group and uh, uh, I have a question for you. You spoke about you know, uh, considering China faster than, than the, even faster than the US and uh, you seem to praise this uh, attribution, this attribute, sorry. So my, my question is, what is your impression about why, why China is so fast? And why maybe in China there is not this resistance between the, the deep state, let's say, and the, the innovators? Uh, while maybe, you know, uh, from a traditional perspective, one would think that uh, bureaucracy in China or the deep state in China would be more, uh, I would say, even more uh, having a b- bigger footprint on the, on the economy and on innovation. So what is your impression about, about this? Yeah, so... Um... The deep state, the deep state, the state in China, the, the, look, I'm not an expert. I, I moved to China in 1993 because I believed that China would return to its place uh, ruling the world, if you will. Uh, and I wanted to participate in the rise of China uh, and learn Chinese and, uh, you know, bridge Western thinking with Eastern thinking and so I did live there for a year and a half in Hong Kong and Beijing, and I studied there, but that doesn't make me an expert. What my feeling is that, uh, you know, the Chinese culture very much admires entrepreneurship. And therefore, there isn't this sense that entrepreneurs are taking jobs from somebody else, but rather that entrepreneurs are doing a good thing, that entrepreneurs are moving people forward, creating something new, and that that's their right, that's their responsibility, and that's good generally for society. You know, there's a sense, I think, more in Europe, but partly in the U.S. as well, that, you know, too much change is hurtful and that there's human suffering that comes along with innovation, with disruption, and that government's job, uh, particularly in France, is to uh, reduce the pace of change so that there is less suffering. And that mindset you see in the unions in Europe with all the protesting and the, the, the strikes and, and in, in Spain and in, in France in particular, you see that the citizens themselves have this mindset. They have this mental pattern that the government should be doing something for them. And in a way, the Chi- Chinese don't have that. It's funny. They, they are so happy to, you know, have the government avoid them, 
that they're very happy just to go off and, and try to make money. And um, they don't necessarily expect the government to do something for them. They kind of think about what they need to do for the government. Uh, and so it frees them up to move much quicker, the, these mental models. And I think uh, the, the European mental models are the opposite. Um, they, they are the opposite, and then they produce the opposite uh, activity, which is to, to slow down innovation. Um, but I can't, I can't pro- profess to be a, a real expert in, in the cultural or structural differences that produce it. But what I will tell you is, I don't think it's structural. I think there's a mistake that a lot of uh, academicians make, a lot of government people make, and particularly a lot of Europeans make, where they think it's about the government or it's about policy. And I'm here to tell you that I don't believe that. I I believe it's about mental models and about psychology. Um, Mm -hmm. That's what Silicon Valley is. People say, well, Silicon Valley has universities and venture capitalists and this and that and the other thing, but that's not true. All that stuff is there because Silicon Valley has a particular mindset. Silicon Valley has a set of mental patterns. That's where it comes from. Yeah, that's that's interesting because, uh, sorry for interrupting you, but just offering you this reflection that, uh, you know, you, you seem to, um, to put uh, Silicon Valley in China, for example, as uh, hotbeds of innovation while... Uh, you know, you also mentioned that this uh, instead the European tendency to uh, uh, resist to creative destruction, let's say. Uh, while if I think about the welfare, uh, for example, in the US and, and China, it's totally different. While maybe there are more parallels in terms of entrepreneurial uh, mindset. So it's really a mindset thing. Yes, it's, it's very much of a mindset thing. And, you know, I had a, a brilliant uh, lunch with a group of people from Switzerland who came and asked me to explain the innovation engine of Silicon Valley so that they could bring it back to Switzerland. And I gave them an hour-long lecture on it, and then we sat and we had lunch, and I was trying to help them understand how we did it. And what I realized in the conversation is that Switzerland doesn't need Silicon Valley's type of innovation. Switzerland has its own form of wealth creation, which is incremental, not creative destruction. And it works just great for them. Ours works great for us. Theirs works great for them. They, they don't need to adopt ours. And, and that was, um, even though they had come thinking they wanted to learn something, I realized you don't need to learn anything. You guys are doing great on your own. There are many sets of mental models which can work, uh, but they have to be self-consistent. Um, and so if we are looking for more uh, great leaps forward, if you will, if we're looking for more innovation, more creative destruction, then there are certain mental models which, which we need for that. Uh, but if we're going to, if we're going to, you know, have more incremental change, then there's certain models that work for that. And look, you know, would I, would I rather live in, in Europe or, or in China? I'd rather live in Europe. The living is better. Do we have a better lifestyle? Yes. So it's not that, Uh, China is better. It's just that they're better and faster at innovation. And it might be that in the end, China is a miserable place to live. And all the humans will be miserable and polluted. (laughs) So I'm not advocating for China. I'm just sitting, I'm just noticing the difference in speed. And, and I'm noticing where the, the networks are coming from, where the innovations are coming from, that the rest of us are all dancing on. I mean, we are all now nodes on Facebook. 
We are all now nodes on Alibaba. Um, I'd rather be Alibaba or Facebook than I would to be a node on the network. You know. So, so um, James, um, after this, you know, more systemic framing of uh, innovation and geopolitics, or somehow geo <laughs> cultures, let's say. Uh, one, one question that I would like to explore with you is more about really. Um, uh, uh, where we see and how we see these uh, market networks and and uh, and uh, network-based models play out in the next decade, and uh, there's a lot of talking about the uh, interplay and relationship between uh, uh, the, the 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 big players like the, the GAFA, the, the you know the Googles and Facebooks and and uh, and the, the Apples and so on, and uh, the uh, platforms, let's say the marketplaces that somehow are emerging uh, on top of this uh, enabling um, uh, enabling platforms, let's say. At least this is uh, the um, consideration that, for example, has emerged lately from the presentation and the, the insights that ben, ben Evans and also Ben Thompson have been exploring lately. So my question for you is... Uh, Uh, how do you see uh, the future of marketplaces uh, playing out? Is it more a future of niche marketplaces that are going to uh, expand more vertically, let's say, or do you see so also the chance to, uh, uh, you know, to see new horizontal marketplaces emerge and somehow uh, reduce the um, impact and the importance of these uh, institutional and infrastructural uh, players? Uh, it's a good question. I think that um, these infrastructural players will continue to be uh, very important and will continue to grow. Um, and I also think that the niche marketplaces will come on as they can better serve their their niches and there will be very specialized language. There'll be specialized profiles. There'll be specialized financial services attached to them that uh, a large platform won't be able to address. Um, nevertheless, because so much of the economy is moving in this direction, I believe both GAFA and the existing platforms, as well as the new companies, are going to continue to grow dramatically over the next 10-20 years. So both will happen. So we're going to transform massively the economy uh, through this pattern. And uh... Uh, what what do you see what do you see in terms of uh, big uh, techno uh, for example technological shifts or social shifts that may uh, transform uh, uh, the the very idea of markets and and, and platforms uh, for example I, you know I'm going to mention a few uh, technologies but just you know just to, to give you uh, an idea of what I'm thinking about I'm thinking about you know uh, AI or or maybe the blockchain or uh, other technologies that, uh, or, or even all the risk factors, like, for example, uh, I don't know, uh, the new uh, attention to uh, sustainability and climate change. So how how is uh, how are these social technical trends going to impact uh, the, the landscape of, uh, of platforms and marketplaces? Yeah. So I think that uh, AI will be sprinkled into everything. And I don't, we, we aren't making investments in pure AI companies because we think it's going to be sprinkled in different places and that largely it's going to end up benefiting the existing incumbents. Okay. 
that's why Google is open sourcing so much of their research is because ultimately it's all going to come back to them. The bigger, the more digitized everything becomes, the more Google benefits. So uh, in terms of blockchain, I, you know, it's, it's hard to say at this point where those applications are going to end up being useful. Um, you know, currency has for the last, you know, 12 years been the major application of it. And yet uh, it hasn't really grown in a long time. And all the new efforts like Libra and others are being stymied by the hierarchies who need to defend their turf. So it'll be interesting to see if that turns into much of anything. Um, uh, the other problem with blockchain, just so you'll know, is that it has attracted sort of the most unsavory types of characters. So again, getting back to culture, getting back to mindset and mental models, the types of people who are attracted to the easy money of crypto and of blockchain um, have really kind of poisoned the well. Um, and there are some incredible mm -hmm. PhDs and brilliant minds who are working on it as well, but they're attracted to it mostly because it's so complex. And it's a great place for their incredible brains to make things as complex and detailed as possible. And we have not yet emerged to the other side of that where it becomes simple and usable. And in fact, many of the people working on developing much of the blockchain infrastructure want it to stay complex because again, that allows them to maintain their status and their position in the systems as the only one who understands what's going on. So there's sort of a disincentive to really make it simple. We've seen that play out repeatedly. So I'm a little bit, a little bit uh, skeptical and have been for a while of, of the ability for blockchain to transform everything other than currencies. And now recently I'm becoming uh, more skeptical of it in currencies because the hierarchies are uh, now understanding the threat to them and are aligned and organized to fight it. So we'll see how that plays out. In terms mm -hmm. of you know, what, what is going to be changing about, about these networks and marketplaces and market networks, what all the technology does is drive transparency. It drives our access to more data. This is this has two, in my mind, um, one one really positive impact and and two negative impacts on society. The positive impact, of course, is efficiency. I can now find the right product or the right service uh, for the lowest price that I couldn't find before. This is great. This is wonderful. Uh, it enables all sorts of magical experiences to happen like Uber and Lyft and, and whatnot. The negatives that people don't talk about as much are the fact that in most human labor markets, there is a power law. So for instance, in the United States, I believe the statistics are that 7% of the re residential real estate brokers broker over 85% of all the transactions in the United States. That's a big market. That's a small number of people. We think that there are, let's say, 1.5 million people who are employed as residential real estate brokers in the U.S., but the fact is only 7% of them are doing well. The others don't have the talent. They don't have the attractiveness. They don't have the the networks, they don't have the energy, the confidence to do well in that job. The internet and these marketplaces make this more clear. 
the internet and these marketplaces drive the power law to be more extreme than it has been in the past, which means that it's going to hurt the middle class dramatically. Because now I can go find the best real estate broker in my region, not a pretty good one or a good enough one. I can find the best baker of croissant, not a pretty good one. I can, et cetera, et cetera. That's an extreme example. But you see my point that, that in many markets, the transparency of data is going to drive a steeper power law so that the winners win more and the people who are behind get further behind. And sometimes we call that um, preferred attachment within the network. Sometimes we call that the Matthew effect. In fact, this is such an annoying fact of, of life that it was mentioned six times in the Bible, starting in the book of Matthew. That's why it's known as the Matthew effect. They were really wrestling with it when they were writing the Bible that this was true, that those ahead got more ahead and those behind got further behind. And uh, the internet is making that more and more true, which makes it difficult for many people to stay relevant to the economy, stay relevant in conversations. Because if I want to have a conversation about a subject now, I don't have to turn to my local professor. I can now go online and engage with the very, very best professor on a particular subject, and she will get all of the attention. She will get more and more of the attention. So, you're, so this transparency leads to power laws. Power laws lead to difficulty for the middle class and the lower classes to stay relevant. Very difficult. And then it will allocate money accordingly. So this is a big concern that I've had for a long time, and we're starting to see it play out. The, the antidote to that is to build systems of education and systems of help that are digital, that are inexpensive, to help those people stay relevant. And this has been something that I've been thinking about since 1991, when I first realized what the internet was going to do and how it was going to impact society. Um, and we are starting to see that with, um, you know, the way that a company like Zillow or Trulia treats its brokers or the way that, you know, these new schools are popping up to, to give people new and advanced skills in social media or advanced skills in, in, in coding or Photoshop or whatever um, to help them stay ahead of these power laws, which are gutting some of these industries. The second problem that I see uh, society getting from these new marketplaces and networks is that the transparency drives fear. Because I can see what's coming, I can fear it. Because I can see how someone else thinks differently than I do, I fear it. And the whole system is triggering a lot of overthinking and a lot of fear that we just didn't used to have because we couldn't see it. We couldn't touch the, the thinking or we couldn't touch the numbers. And now that we can and we see our own failings or we see someone else doing better than us or we see someone else expressing a way of thinking about gun control or about taxation in a way that's different from ours, it triggers our amygdalas, it triggers our fear centers, and that is causing us to behave in ways that are ultimately self-defeating because we live in fear rather than living in hope. And that's making it more likely that authoritarians rise. 
and we're seeing this across the globe. Is this only coming from social media? Is this only coming from marketplaces? I don't know, but I sure know it has a big impact on the mental models that people are living with these days. Thank you. I have a follow-up question on this um, transparency because um, so when you say that one positive thing is that it drives efficiency, do you also see that with more transparency that you can create a sort of race to the top when it comes to, for instance, environmental and social impact that is not only sort of market share, but also the quality of your your offerings? Uh, yes. Um, when I say the power law, that's, that's what I'm driving at, that the people with the best ideas or the best talent uh, will race to the top and the systems will elevate them to be even more on top and more on top. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly. And, and what you're, well, I guess your point is that you could use the same mechanisms to help us solve problems as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think, I think that the same mechanism can be used to help us solve problems, but generally so far has not been. Yeah. In fact, the transparency causing fear is causing us to do the opposite. Right? And you can see in the United States, we are going backwards in terms of environmental protection. We're going backwards in terms of, um, you know, sort of civics. We're going backwards in terms of how our government runs. It's, um, it's being dismantled in the name of fear. So. Interesting. I, I, James, is Sorry, sorry. It's a question on, on, on this specifically because uh, it also connects with another topic that I, I wanted to explore quickly with you. Uh, do, you do you see these, uh, uh, let's say, these dynamics uh, driving towards polarization and uh, power laws and, and uh, uh, I would say, uh, inequality somehow uh, being uh, generated just, just by the... Uh, technological nature of the internet, so this capability to create transparency and data and interconnectedness, or it's also a matter of the, um, let's say, the traditional choices that are behind uh, uh, creation of the, uh, the creation of a company. So I'm thinking of, uh, for example, all this movement that you probably familiar with uh, around uh, platform cooperatives and uh, new uh, potential ways of uh, uh, governance for platforms that are more, I would say, uh, protecting and respectful for the workers, for example, or that, that can, can actually give rights or, or maybe also some access to, uh, to, um, to revenues Uh, to the to the to the workers, the jig workers. Uh, so, do you see uh, any potential in these uh, uh, new uh, you know new ways of thinking about platforms in more democratic, more accessible, more 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 participatory ways? I do. I see a lot of potential in them, and uh, it's just uh, one of them is going to have to succeed and then drag the whole system with it. Right. I mean, we've been talking about another example would be when you take a company public in the United States, it's typically done through the old hierarchies. And we've been talking about having open and direct IPOs since the early 90s. And there was a big movement in the 1998-99 period. And then again, in 2000, Google almost went a direct listing. 
And in the last second, the hierarchies flew all the investment bankers from New York out to San Francisco, and they all lived for months in the hotels around the Google headquarters to influence Larry and Sergey to not do a direct listing because that would have undermined their franchise. And in the end, they convinced them not to do a direct listing. And that delayed a more promising way, a more democratic way uh, of doing things for 16 years. And so I believe there's a lot of potential in these new models, but we need charismatic leaders to do it once or twice to show us how it's done so that it becomes the new standard. Someone has to break through because otherwise the preferred attachment will continue to go to those who do not. Mm-hmm. So it will be we would need a big you know like a, a big platform co-op making the rounds and and you know uh, great success and you know to, to to somehow drive a new culture a shift towards these new patterns. That seems to be the pattern of how these things change. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, James, in terms of. Uh, um, uh, spaces, uh, I would say uh, uh, the hot, uh, the hot spaces. Let's say that where you you are uh, lately, uh, where, where you see these patterns, these ways of organizing uh, playing out in the in the short term. Uh, so let's let's look more into the short term now. So where do you see the market networks and the platforms uh, uh, moving? What, what new te- new spaces? What new consumer spaces or business uh, spaces or or, or you know, institutional space. Yeah. So broadly speaking, we see the human capital, um, I think, being transformed over the next 10 years. I think people are finally ready for it. That's my guess. Um, you know, uh, the labor market, and there, there's a number of segments within human capital. One, I would say we have labor marketplaces um, with the staffing model, which is where it's recurring something like an Upwork, where you're paying them on a weekly or a daily or a monthly basis. Um, And there are some successes there, although that has been hard to find really breakout companies in that space. Then there's placement marketplaces, things like um, Incredible Health, Hired.com, where these companies, these platforms are getting paid $5,000, $7,000, $35,000 to place a new worker in a new job. Um, that's a second area that um, we're investing quite a lot in. And then uh, then there's the ISAs and the whole educational change. So ISAs, these income sharing agreements have been quite popular in Europe for a long time, but are just now getting to the United States. And the two things that the ISAs do is it allows for people to be retrained quickly and it causes the educational institution itself to lower its costs and increase its efficacy in terms of employability. And this, the ISAs and the new form of financing helps to speed up the development of more of these these educational institutions to give people the skills they need. And as the world moves to digital, uh, most of the high paying, interesting jobs are digital. And so people wanna be retrained the companies trying to hire digital people want to uh, have them trained. And so it's all working now. It's much like, you know, in the 1920s and 30s, learning to weld, you know, or learning to drive a forklift. 
right? Uh, these, these were the plentiful jobs at the age of industrialization and people needed to be trained on them rather than taking care of horses. And mm -hmm. uh, so we see a big, a big shift taking place there around ISAs and education. And then of course, the fourth one is around market networks where you have professionals uh, who are not looking for a job, who are not being rented out as staffing and are not re-educating themselves, but you know they're professionals in travel or in legal or in uh, architecture or interior design. These professionals whose jobs are still needed and, and being paid for, uh, they need a place for their profile. They need a place for their network. They need a place for landing and uh, landing their next uh, revenue and then coordinating with other people that they coordinate with. Uh, we've given a term to this five years ago called market networks. And we see these and we've invested in companies doing it in law and in travel and in residential real estate, in commercial real estate, you know, media production, uh, architecture, uh, consulting, interior design. Um, many, many of these verticals are, are places we've already invested in and will continue to invest in because uh, we think that nearly all independent professionals and their clients will start to conduct their business through the market network of their industry. So you're going to end up with verticals in particular industries uh, helping to coordinate these, these professional services types of activities. So those are the four sort of human capital areas we see and, and ones we're investing in in the near term. Super, very interesting. And uh, and if I instead, if I ask you to to share your impression uh, towards uh, what are the major risk factors that uh, you see uh, potentially playing out in the in the coming decade in terms of impacts on the economy, but I would say on this. Uh, 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 understanding of the economy that seems like emerging from your words, and also this powerfully digitally powered uh, economy where everybody's connected, that you can uh, leverage on your talent and institutions become less relevant and uh, uh, entrepreneurship is become, becoming more important. So, so what do you see? What are the major risk factors that you see potentially playing out? Uh, it's interesting. I don't often think about that. <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I, I always look at the opportunity to move forward. Um, look, I think that, that some people are not going to have the personality to manage their own career very well. Um, some, you know, there are not so many people that are extroverted, that are confident, that are physically healthy and, these systems, because they drive the power law, will benefit the more fit people and it will mm -hmm. disadvantage the less fit people. And so that, I think, is a big challenge. I think the, the second thing we need to be careful of is that as these networks and these platforms become more powerful, they don't suck all of the value into the center. Um, you know, they can take... a you know, I remember when, when Android launched, they said, oh, I, I, you know, Apple is taking 30% of your revenue for having your app on their platform. We'll only take 10%. But then after, you know, seven years, they said, okay, great. We'll go up to 30% now too. Because once you get the network effect in place, it's really hard to, dis to displace you. And then you can pretty much charge whatever you want. So I think we're going to have challenges with these network effect businesses drawing 
all of the value into the center and leaving the edges of the network, the edges, the nodes on the edge of the network with very little, uh, just mm-hmm. because of the math. And that's why those are the types of businesses we invest in. I mean, let's we're, we're trying to uh, make good investments. And that means that we want our businesses to become very valuable. And to become very valuable, you want to build a network effect and draw a lot of value into the center. I think the the businesses that will thrive for 20 or 40 or 50 years will be those that are led by management, which change from being just returns focused to being more statesmen, to being more statespeople, understanding the broader implications. And that, I think, is the mental shift that a guy like Mark Zuckerberg needs to make. He's made some incredible Mm -hmm. changes in his own personality and his own maturity and his own growth over the last 15, 20 years. Incredible. I mean, the guy's remarkable. But there's this last shift he needs to make to be a statesman and understand that he's kind of running a nation and that he needs to treat it as such. And if he would take that perspective, I think it would be better for Facebook in the long term. And, uh, and so that's, that's another risk we have is that by, by their nature, these network effect businesses can draw too much of the value to themselves and make it very difficult for the people on the outside of the nodes, the, the, on the edge of, of the network. That kind of uh, describes, you know, this uh, evolution towards more um, uh, responsibility for platforms as they become so much important uh, and even more important than traditional institutions that have uh, regulated our society, you know. So so it's. Uh, I think it's a very interesting note to end our conversation, uh, which is uh, now one hour long. Uh, so I, you know, unless you you want to add something more, uh, James, that uh, you believe is important for our listeners. Um, no, I think we've said a lot of good things. I mean, we we continue to believe that these network and marketplace and market network approaches of digitizing things are going to change all of the B two B marketplaces. You know, we tried to do B two B marketplaces twenty years ago, and it didn't work. But I think it's going to work this time. Um, there was too much resistance from the hierarchies. Mm-hmm. And now I think it's a new generation of people running the businesses that are more digitally savvy. And um, and I think that uh, it'll happen this time. I think we're going to see a lot of fintech-enabled marketplaces. And you know those countries and those places with more open financial or more liberal you know, financial rules and regulations are going to benefit as we add fintech to pretty much everything. I mean... You know, uh, you know, Facebook is going to add fintech to Messenger and to WhatsApp and to, to Facebook itself. And every marketplace is going to add fintech to it. Um, you know, as people get on these market networks, you're going to see new people emerge as leaders in their in their industries. Um, you're going to you're going to see, you know, you're going to continue to see delivery and transportation uh, transform. It's only begun, I think. Um, and, and we expect there to be a, a new thing called Enterprise Gateway Marketplaces, which we're going to be writing a blog post about soon. But <clears throat> the idea is that large corporations became large because the coordination costs were lower when someone was inside the organization. 
But now that we have these marketplaces and we have the internet and, and whatnot, coordination costs because of politics and because of positioning and because of regulation and processes are more expensive inside the large corporation. And so you're going to start to see large corporations turn outside for more and more of their operations. And you're going to have gateway marketplaces that are going to allow these big companies to find the services they need outside the company and get things done cheaper and faster than by doing it inside the company. And that's going to be a huge transformation over the next 15 years uh, for large corporations and the hundreds of millions of people who work there. So those are some of the things we're thinking about. Yeah, it's going to be very challenging for all kinds of incumbents, apparently. <laughs> well, so, they're, they're going to fight it. They will fight all of it. James, thanks very much for your, for your time. That was a, such an insightful conversation and that's, I, 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 countless insights that we're going to share with our, with our listeners. So thanks very much again and thanks for being a guest on our podcast. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you, Simone. Thank you, Thank you for listening to Boundaryless Conversation Podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media and subscribe to our podcast by looking up for Boundaryless Conversation Podcast on all major podcasting platforms. Stay tuned on www.platformdesigntoolkit.com for more general research updates, where you can also find opportunities for learning and free tools for you and your team to design platform strategies in these turbulent times. This podcast has been brought to you by our research sponsor, Intesa San Paolo. We want to also thank Walter Mobilio at Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.